Has something in the Bible ever kept you up at night? Have questions of your faith ever driven you crazy? How many hairs do I have? What did God do on his day off? Have you ever had a question you were just too afraid to ask? Will my dog go to heaven? Where do babies come from? When a bell rings, do angels really get wings? Well, now all your questions will be answered with America's favorite church game. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready to... Stop the Pastor! With your host, the beacon of the Bible, the guru of the gospel... He puts the attitude in the Beatitudes. Ladies and gentlemen, Clay Hall. Well, happy Labor Day weekend. Welcome, you guys. Glad that you're here this morning. Let's just start right off with our first question. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I have no clue. Did they play baseball in the Bible? Yes, actually they did. In the big inning, Eve stole first, Adam stole second, Cain struck out Abel, and the prodigal son came home. All right, all right. Did they play tennis in the Bible? Absolutely they did. Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. They liked that better, the previous service. What, what, do we have, what do we have that Adam and Eve did not have? Ancestors. And then my favorite, what did Adam say when his children asked why they couldn't live in the Garden of Eden? Your mother ate us out of house and home. There you go. All right. Hey, uh, this really is a church service here. And if this is your first time This is a little bit unusual. We don't normally do this, but it's the end of the summer, and uh, we thought we'd have a little bit of fun and try to learn a few things uh, at the same time. My name is Clay, and I actually am one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you're here this morning, especially if it's your first time. We'd love for you, as Michael was saying, to stop by the guest center, uh, meet some of the folks there, and ask them any questions that you may have, and so we're really glad that you are here. Uh, A few, a couple months ago, actually, we started... um, asking you guys to submit some questions that you might have, questions on any topic related to the Bible and God and and that sort of thing. We collected those questions over the last uh, couple of months, and we compiled them together. And then last week, we answered a set of questions, most of which uh, had some emotional overtones to them, questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? And it was kind of intense on the emotional end. This week, we're going to do a little bit differently, focus a little bit more on some of the more intellectually oriented questions. So hopefully it'll be helpful, you'll learn some things, and uh, hopefully also it'll be helpful to you in growing in your relationship with God. And so the first actually serious question that I want to address uh, today is, can I, or can you is the way they put it, can you explain the Renaissance logo? Ooh, that's a good question. So there's, there's the Renaissance logo. Can I explain the Renaissance logo? Well, there are a number of different theories that are floating on around as to uh, what the Renaissance logo might mean. For example, some people think it has something to do with golf. Yeah, there we go. See? And, and uh, if you've been around Renaissance for any length of time, you understand why there are some people who think the Renaissance logo is about golf. It is not about golf, nor is it about mustaches. Apparently, the curve in the middle looks a little bit like a mustache, and so some people think that's it. And the next one... 
This is actually the one that most people think it's about. They think it's about the Obama campaign logo. It is not. We are apolitical. We are not Republicans. We're not Democrats. And it is absolutely not about the Obama campaign logo, contrary to popular belief. And it's definitely not Mr. Potato Head. So what is it about? Well, I decided rather than me trying to explain it to you, I was going to ask somebody who actually knew because he was involved in the creation of the logo. I want Charlie Pollock to come on up, and he's going to explain that to us. And if you don't know Charlie, not only can Charlie sing and play the guitar and do Shakespeare, but he actually is the most fit person on our staff. We had a get fit contest on this, uh, among the staff members, and Charlie, as part of that, did, what was it, 101 push-ups without stopping. Isn't that pretty amazing? I thought that was pretty cool. I think the thing, thank you, thank you. Um, but the, the, the stat I'm most proud of is that I did, uh, I also planked for five minutes without stopping. So those of you planking fans know that's serious business. Um, the logo, however, we, uh, like a, a year and a half ago, two years ago, we decided that uh, Renaissance needed a, a different image that would associate it with the world. Uh, every other organization that has the name Renaissance has an R and some variation thereof. So we started thinking, well, we want to do something. What, what should we do? And we were thinking about the word Renaissance, our name, and, and what that means, and how it's not the Renaissance. It's not Michelangelo. It's not Renaissance fairs. But it is this word Renaissance. And that by itself means rebirth and renewal. And we really like that. That was evocative to us. So we, we started playing with that and then we started thinking about the people who come to Renaissance and how uh, the people who walk through the door, this has actually, for a lot of them, this has become a Renaissance for them as well. They, they may have been to church before, and this is a fresh, new experience that has uh, given rebirth to their relationship with God. Or, for the first time, they've got a relationship with God, and they understand who Jesus Christ is. And that is creating rebirth and renewal within them. And we thought, well, that... That's an amazing thing. So what image captures that idea? And so then we started playing around with a lot of different things. But then a sunrise really captured our, our imagination. But we knew it couldn't just be a sunrise because this is Renaissance and we want to be unique. And we take art very, very seriously. So we, uh, we decided to uh, sort of create an abstraction of a sunrise. And that is what we ended up with. The Renaissance logo is an abstraction of a sunrise which symbolizes uh, renewal, rebirth, uh, hope, a new day. That's the Renaissance logo. There you go. Thanks, Charlie. And you know what I think is, is so cool about so many things here at Renaissance is the intentionality with which uh, we do things like the logo that just focuses really on the, the basic message that we're proclaiming of new life in Christ and all that he's done for us. And so it's, I just haven't been here now for six years. That's pretty cool for me to be able to, to see those sorts of things. So our next question, how do we get our Bible? How did we get our Bible? And uh, another way of asking that question would be, how did the early Christians decide among all of the writings that they have, how did they decide which ones were authoritative and should be preserved and passed down uh, from generation to generation. 
And the popular conception of how that occurred is that you had a bunch of old white guys who were sitting in a smoke-filled room kind of politicking and horse trading back and forth. You know, I'll give you Matthew if you give me John, and I'll give you Romans if you'll give me the book of Hebrews, and nobody likes that. You know, that's not exactly the way that it happened. It was a little bit more complex than that. It was actually a lot more organic than that. And it began uh, well over a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. And if you, if you go back historically, the first books of the Old Testament, the first writings of what we would today call the Old Testament, were written around somewhere around 1400 B.C. And the Israelites, the people of Israel, had been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. And roughly in about 1440 B.C., Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt. And they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, God gave them things like the Ten Commandments. And towards the end of that time, he gave them what we know as the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses writes about this in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And he says, after Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, and that would have been the book of Deuteronomy, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. So Moses had finished writing the book of Deuteronomy and he said to the Levites who were some of the religious leaders, he said, take this book, place it next to the Ark of the Covenant, which would have been in what was called the tabernacle. Now the Ark of the Covenant was a box that was a focal point of Israel's worship, and it contained some of the key items for their worship and things to help them to remember God and focus on him. And it was in the tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure that was the center point of Israel's worship during that day. And so Moses says, take this book, put it next to the Ark of the Covenant in this central point of worship, so that it's going to be preserved and it can be passed down from generation to generation. And over the next thousand years or so, as more sacred and authoritative writings were collected, they were placed in later on in the temple because that became a permanent structure. The tabernacles, when they were wandering around in the wilderness, when they had a permanent home, they built a temple. And so the sacred, inspired, authoritative writings were collected as they were being written over a period of about a thousand years. So by the time that Jesus and the apostles came on the scene, the Jewish people had a set of, depending on how you count them, 22 or 24 authoritative books. And the difference between the 22 and 24 is just how a couple of them were broken up. It was all the same amount of words They just combined or broke them up a little bit differently. And those 22 or 24 authoritative writings of the Hebrew Bible are what became our Old Testament. Now, our Old Testament has 39 books in it, and the Hebrew Bible that the Jews use today has 24, but those 24 and those 39 are the same. For example, we have books of 1 and 2 Samuel, they've got just the book of Samuel, which is the combination of the two. Actually, we broke it apart into two books. They've got the book of Kings. We've got First and Second Kings. They've got the book of Chronicles. We've got First and Second Chronicles. So in fact, 
if you compare word for word, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible is a better way of putting it, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament are essentially the same. A few different books are in different order. For example, our last book would be the book of Malachi. The last book in the Jewish Bible would be the book of Chronicles. So just a couple of differences in that way, but essentially all the words are the same. So the Old Testament that we have is the Bible that Jesus and the apostles would have used. So that's how we got the first 39 of the 66 books of our Bible. When you come to the New Testament, the principles behind the collection of these authoritative writings, the principles were essentially the same, but the way in which it was done was a little bit different because Old Testament Israel was centralized. They were in one location, whereas New Testament Christians were spread out over an area of thousands of square miles. And so it was a little bit different. There was no central repository. So that's why it took several hundred years, and that's why the popular conception that these things were decided at a council, that's where that arose, because there were councils involved, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But this decentralization uh, meant that the organic collection was a little bit different than the way that it was done with Old Testament Israel. So if you look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, Luke writes, he says, they, this is the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because the apostles were the ones whom God was using to bring his authoritative teaching, his authoritative writings for the church. And so the questions that the early Christians were asking were things like, does this book, does this writing accurately reflect who Jesus was, what Jesus did, what Jesus said? So, for example, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Well, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus spending most of every day for a period of three, three and a half years with Jesus. So is it reasonable to conclude that he knew what Jesus said and did? Yeah, it was. Some other writings that were purported to be by people like Matthew but weren't and really had nothing to do with people who were immediate followers of Jesus, those were rejected because they didn't accurately trace themselves back to Jesus and who he was and what he said and what he did. And then the apostles, people like Peter and Paul and and others, they again, the question that was being asked is, does this accurately reflect what Jesus was teaching? Is it something that we believe is inspired by God? Is it something that we believe is applicable to us as his followers? So I was mentioning this kind of distributed, this decentralized idea. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have the internet, but they were able to circulate different books. So, for example, let's use the letter to the church at Ephesus. We know that as the book of Ephesians. Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. But if you look at some of the Greek manuscripts of that, you'll find that it's worded something like this at the beginning. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church at... And then there's a blank. Why? Because... The intent was that letter would be circulated among different churches. Now, many of the copies that we have were ones that came from Ephesus, so it's going to say to the church at Ephesus. But uh, scholars believe that what happened is maybe it went to Ephesus first, but then they 
wrote a copy and passed it on to Laodicea, and they passed it on to Philadelphia, and they passed it on to, and it goes on and on and on, to different cities throughout the known world, so that these documents, these writings, were circulated by the early Christians, shared with one another, and over a period of decades and really two, three hundred years, a consensus, an organic consensus, was built up as to which were the inspired, authoritative, sacred writings that God had given to his people alongside the 39 books of the Old Testament. So when the councils got together, say, at the end of the 4th century, they weren't sitting there horse-trading back and forth and you know arguing and kind of some of the stuff that we might have imagined. Instead, what they were doing is they were trying to understand what was the organic consensus that had really already been achieved over a period of centuries. So they were trying more to discover what God had been doing over several hundred years rather than sitting and saying, well, I like this, so let's include it. I don't like that, but if you'll give me this one, I'll give you that, and, you know, and that kind of a conception that we might have. So that's how uh, we got the 66 books that we have in our Old and New Testaments, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. And God has given these books to us. God has given the Bible to us so that we can know who he is, who we are, how we can have a relationship with him, how we ought to relate to one another, and how we can proclaim his greatness uh, to the world around us, how we ought to live as his followers, and, and, and on and on and on. And we have a privilege as the people of God, as his followers, to have these sacred authoritative writings that give us an understanding of who God is and help us to grow in our relationship with him. So my encouragement, you know, my reminder to myself, my encouragement to you guys is let's be people of the book. Let's read the Bible. Let's understand it. Let's talk about it. That's why here at Renaissance, our messages on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings are so focused on what the Bible is saying because we believe that this is God's, really his revelation to us of himself and of who he created us to be. So that would be my encouragement to you coming out of, out of that question. But one that kind of follows from that is, okay, we're living in what we might call the post-New Testament era. Do we today still have to obey the Old Testament? Do we have to obey the Old Testament commands, for example? Which is a great question. And my answer to that would be no but. No, we don't, but, and you're laughing, which is, which is good, because I want to I use an analogy here that I think is going to be helpful in, in understanding this. Imagine if I were to move from the United States to Canada, okay? So I move north several hundred miles, and I'm now living in Canada. Do I have to obey U.S. law while I'm living in Canada, No, I don't have to obey U.S. law. I need to obey Canadian law. I'm not in the United States anymore, so I obey the law of the land in which I'm living. So does that mean that it's okay for me to murder or it's okay for me to steal or it's okay for me to lie or cheat or, you know, whatever it is? Well, no, because the moral foundations of Canadian law are essentially the same as the moral foundations of United States law. So while I'm not under U.S. law anymore... 
I'm under Canadian law, the foundations are essentially the same. Now, there's some details that are different in some of the things, you know, say some of the holidays, you know, that are celebrated are a little bit different in Canada. They like to spell Labor Day with a U after the O. They spell it, you know, O-U-R in terms of Labor Day and that kind of thing, but it's still, you know, it's still tomorrow. They celebrate Thanksgiving in October uh, rather than November. I guess that's because the permafrost is so deep by the time of November, their feet might, I don't know, you know exactly why it's October rather than November. Uh, December 26th is the holiday in Canada. Anybody know what that is? Boxing Day, yeah, which interestingly has absolutely nothing to do with fighting. Uh, they have hockey for that. Um, it has to do with returning Christmas presents, apparently, on the day after Christmas. And here's the one that is the most unusual In Canada, they celebrate the 4th of July on July 1st. They call it Canada Day. We call it Independence Day because they're not actually independent of Britain. They're still under the crown. And uh, they're, you know, they kind of are into the British monarchy. But as I was thinking about that, I realized so are we because we kind of get obsessed with people like Princess Diana and Catherine, who is the Duchess of Cambridge, also known as Kate Middleton, although her appropriate title is Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge. So there are some differences, but those differences in the holidays, for example, don't change the fact that the bottom line morality is essentially the same as the United States and Canada between those two. So similarly, although we are no longer under the Old Testament law, we don't have to obey the Old Testament law the underlying morality has not changed because the God whose character upon which that morality is based, because that God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, as we talked about last week. God has not changed. We are still created in his image and are to look like him spiritually and morally, etc. So murder is still wrong in the New Testament, just as it was in the Old Testament. And here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. So we're released from the Old Testament law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He's saying, The Spirit of the law is still there. Murder was wrong before. It's still wrong today. Nothing in terms of that foundation has changed. But our focus is not on the rules and regulations. It's on what's behind that and the intent and the spirit behind that. And Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So that's coming essentially from the Old Testament. But I, Jesus tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a way of sort of saying, you idiot, uh, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, one of the, the commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is saying, you know, you can get so focused on don't murder, don't commit adultery that you say, well, I never actually killed anybody or I never actually slept with someone who's not my wife or my husband, so I haven't committed murder or adultery. And Jesus says, well, if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. If you've lusted to somebody, you've committed adultery in your heart. 
So don't focus just on the letter of the law. Focus on the spirit of the law, not in a legalistic way, but on a way that reflects the character of the God of the Old Testament who is the same God in the New Testament. So do we have to obey the Old Testament law? No, but essentially we're going to end up pretty much in the same place in the New Testament as well. And, and Jesus says in, over in Matthew 22, they, they were asking him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's a quote from the Old Testament. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, again from the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, hangs on these two commandments. So he's saying, if you love God and you love people, if we love God with our whole heart and we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to be in compliance with the Old Testament law. And are the commands to love God and love others found in the New Testament? Yeah, all over the place. And so if we as New Testament Christians, as followers of Jesus, are living by those two commands, love God and love others, we are essentially going to exhibit basically the same behavior that someone was exhibiting during the Old Testament time frame. Yeah, some of the holidays and some things like that are going to be somewhat different, but the underlying morality is the same because it's based on the character of God. So what about some specific examples? Like, do we have to tithe? Do we as Christians have to give 10% of our income? No, we don't. We're not Old Testament Israel. We don't have to tithe. But we do have the privilege of participating in the work that God is doing. We have the privilege of giving in order to advance what God is doing in the world around us. We give, Paul says, generously. We give gratefully. We give cheerfully. We give because we want to, not because we have to. So do we have to tithe? No, but we get to give. And so for some people, some of us give 1% or 2%. Others give 5%. Some give 10% of their income. I have friends who give 15 or 20% or more of their income because they're so excited about what God is doing. They're so grateful for what he's done for them that when they sing, all of it's yours, Lord, they mean I want to give you as much as I possibly can. So the tithe isn't a shackle for them. It isn't a limitation for them either. They're not even so much thinking about it from that perspective. They're thinking about, I want to give generously. I want to give sacrificially. I want to give cheerfully because I'm so excited about participating in what God's doing. Similarly, do we have to keep the Sabbath? No, we don't have to keep the Sabbath, but do we get to rest? Absolutely. What's Labor Day about, for example? Even our country recognizes the need for rest. And if you jump back to the Old Testament time period, one of the reasons why God gave the Sabbath to the people of Israel, one of the several reasons that he gave it to them, was to remind them that they had once been slaves in Egypt where they worked seven days a week, 13 months, they had 13 months, 13 months a year, 365 days a year. 
They're constantly working. But they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And part of the blessing of the Sabbath was it was rest for them. Because really the only time they got to rest was when they were, when basically when they died. You know, they, they were born into slavery, lived slavery the whole, their whole life. God freed them from that. And so for them, it could be a celebration. And sometimes, for both Jews and Christians, sometimes the, the Sabbath concept can become this shackle. You know, it can become this just, this weight on us. But when you look at the New Testament concept of rest, it's a privilege that we have to rest. So do we have to take a Sabbath? No, but would we want to? I mean, who wouldn't want to take time to rest, to worship God, to spend time with family, just to do something different than we do for the rest of the week? So it's a privilege, it's an opportunity that we have. So those are just a couple of examples. So again, do we have to obey the Old Testament law? No. But if we love God with our whole heart, if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to see ourselves living pretty much in the same way in terms of the moral code. So next question. What do we know about Jesus' brothers and sisters? This is a question that uh, people ask uh, actually fairly frequently. What do we know about Jesus' brothers and sisters? Well, from what we can tell, Jesus had at least four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. And, and if Christianity is really new to you, when I, the reason I say half-brothers and half-sisters is because we believe that uh, Jesus was conceived by Mary. Mary was his physical mother, but the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, conceived Jesus inside Mary's womb. So Joseph, who was Jesus' uh, legal father, was not his physical, biological father, but his brothers and sisters were born the normal way to Joseph and Mary. So that's why they would be viewed as his half-brothers and half-sisters. And Matthew 13 talks a little bit about this, and it says... Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. Imagine growing up as one of Jesus' brothers or sister. I mean, you can't blame anything on the guy because he never does anything wrong, right? You know, and then when you've got little rivalry or whatever going on, when they're jealous of him, you know, what can they do? What can they say? And, and can you imagine that they're, they're sitting there and they're saying, who does he think he is? What does he think? He's the Messiah or God or something like that? And now mom, Mary understood this, but his brothers and his sisters didn't. And in fact, uh, the gospel writer John tells us that not even his brothers were believing in him. Because if you think about just the normal family dynamics, we don't appreciate the gifts and talents and abilities. We don't appreciate the identity of the people in our own household the way that we do with other people so often. And that dynamic was present for Jesus. And in fact, in the gospel of Mark, uh, Mark writes and, and talks about how Jesus, there was one time when Jesus' family thought he was nuts. They, they said something like, he's out of his mind, so they went to try to go and collect him and bring him home and give him a break because they were worried for his mental state. Why? Because they didn't understand 
who he was. And yet, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, we read in the opening chapter of the book of Acts, which is a, a, a book in the New Testament gives us some of the history of the early church. It starts basically after Jesus' resurrection and it continues on uh, for a couple of decades talking about what was going on in the early church. And it begins and it's talking about at that point his brothers believed in him. They were there worshiping him. Their older brother, who they thought was nuts, they're now worshiping him as their risen Lord and Savior. And so they recognized who he was when they encountered the risen Jesus. And James, interestingly, later on became probably the key leader in the early church. We normally think of Peter and Paul as the key leaders in the early church, and they absolutely were. But even before they came to prominence, James was the key leader of the church in Jerusalem. And when Paul became a convert to Christianity. When Jesus appeared to him and he came to faith in Jesus, he actually went up to Jerusalem to talk to James to make sure that his, that Paul's understanding of Christianity was correct. So this brother of Jesus went from skeptic to believer to leader in the early church. And we have a book by his name, James, the epistle of James, was written by one of Jesus' younger brothers. And there's actually another one, the Epistle of Jude, which is one of the smaller books that's less well-known in the New Testament. It was written by his brother Judas, and Judas and Jude are, are the same person. It's not Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus, just two different spellings of the same basic name. So two of Jesus' four brothers ended up coming to faith in him and writing books and becoming leaders in the New Testament. And what I think is so cool about this is their transformation is actually paralleled in the lives of other disciples like Matthew and John and Bartholomew and so many of the other disciples. If you trace their spiritual journey, you find that they started off curious and then they believed, but they had questions, they had doubts, they had concerns, they had issues. Peter, for example, ended up denying Jesus, not because he lost his faith, but because he was scared and yet he continued to grow, and he became a leader in the early church. And the same thing's true with us. Spiritual growth is a process. It begins so often with curiosity, asking questions about who Jesus is. Maybe some skepticism, some openness, some questions, some doubts, some concerns, and it grows. And, and at some point along the way, we say, yeah, you know, I really do believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again that I could have eternal life with him. But I still got some questions. And then we have some doubts. We go back and forth. But ultimately, it's this up and to the right kind of a process by which we grow closer to God. And my encouragement to you guys, to myself, reminder to myself over and over and over again is embrace the process. Take that next step of faith, whether it's beginning to read the Bible for the very first time and just asking some basic questions about Jesus or whether it's reading it again, whether it's getting involved in uh, activities and opportunities here at Renaissance, whether it's, you know, and we could go on and on as to the different next steps we could take, whether we're just beginning or whether we've been a follower of Jesus for decades. We all need to embrace and continue with the process. And one great opportunity, if you have never uh, taken advantage of it here at Renaissance, is something that we call the project. And the project is a four-week experience. It's a very discussion-oriented, highly interactive 
conversational time where uh, each weekend, for over this four-week period of time, we spend an hour and a half or so just talking about questions like, who is God? What's my relationship to him? Who am I as a human being? How do I relate to those around me? Who's Jesus? What's my relationship with him? You know, how ought I to live my life as a follower of Jesus? And we've had somewhere close to 150 people at Renaissance have gone through it already. Folks who are kind of skeptical and just starting out and people who have been followers of Jesus for decades. And over and over and over again, we're hearing there's something in there for me that's helping me to take next steps and to grow and to to really embrace this process. So if you're interested in that, there's details online or you can ask questions in the guest center or grab me afterwards. The next session starts on Saturday night, October 5th, right after the Saturday evening service, and you can sign up online for that. And let me encourage you to, to really consider doing that. So I hope that I've been able to answer at least some of the questions. I realize there were other questions we didn't have time to get to. And I also recognize that some of the questions that we answered, we had to go through pretty quickly. So if you want a more in-depth answer, if you're a little frustrated that I didn't get to a particular aspect of a question, let me know. Shoot me an email, talk to me. I'd love to, to go over some things in more depth. If you have other questions, shoot us an email as well. Uh, we were just talking about it earlier today. Uh, we may be able to do another episode of Stump the Pastor sometime later on this year or uh, next year good opportunity for us to interact over some questions. So we're grateful that you guys sent in so many really good questions. Let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll close our time together. Father, we are grateful for the Bible that you've given us, uh, that we can learn about you, about ourselves, and how we can have a relationship with you, and how we can live our lives as your followers. And we're grateful for that. We're also grateful for the process Uh, that we're embarked on. And I pray for each of us that we would constantly be taking those next steps and growing closer to you and exploring and finding out more about who you are and how we can grow in our relationship with you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have a great week and put September 13th on your calendar. Bring a friend and bring a uh, bag of food to the park uh, in about two weeks. Thanks.